Hello, I'm Christian, and you're listening to Inside the Cambodia Project, an educational podcast where we discuss cutting-edge research on sustainable business in an emerging market. So in our last episode, I talked with Ben Beck, an assistant professor of marketing and director of the Cambodia Project at Brigham Young University. In that episode, Ben and I discussed the Better Marketing for a Better World initiative and its implications for current research. Ben also shared three notable academic papers on pro-social marketing, and we got to really dive deep into their respective research designs. Like the Better Marketing for a Better World academic initiative, there are many nonprofits that are doing wonderful work in lifting the world. Today, I'm so excited because I get to interview someone with a lot of experience with nonprofit social good projects. Our guest today is Shane Harrison, an adjunct professor at BYU's Ballard Center for the Social Impact, and a man who has also served on the board of the Cambodian Job Foundation for years before he volunteered as the US-based executive director of that foundation. Shane has a passion for helping individuals and organizations achieve great performance. In particular, he aims to help mission-driven organizations improve themselves and to achieve a greater impact for good. He has a wealth of experience working with tons of amazing people all over the world, but particularly in Southeast Asia. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shane. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I, um, I like to begin every podcast, Shane, with a meaningful quote. And today's quote comes from the American comedian and actor Milton Berle. I don't know if you've heard of him. He famously once said, if opportunity doesn't come knocking, build a door. It's kind of short and sweet, but what do you think about this quote? What does it mean to you? Well, I, I think back to the, the five years that I worked and lived in Cambodia, many people who were struggling and there weren't jobs available in the market and there weren't uh, opportunities for people. They had to go out and they had to create their own opportunity. They had to uh, learn entrepreneurial skills and you know, be, uh, make their own businesses. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think um, we have it pretty good here in America. You know, there's lots of jobs just out there, right? But uh, it's crazy. In Cambodia, is it common for, you know, someone to just kind of create their own job or create their own business? Is that, you know, normal? Would you see that? Well, things have changed over time, but if, if you look at uh, a lot of countries that have, you know, less developed, uh, you know, market systems, education systems, there's not a ready pipeline leading from, you know, education to the workforce. And so you get a lot of uh, small scale, you know, uh, markets, people opening, you know, roadsides, stalls selling things and such like that. Not just in Cambodia, but many, many countries around the world. Yeah, that's super interesting. So like, if you were to define what building a door looks like for people in developing markets, what would you say? You know, going back to the quote, how do you, how do you build a door? Well, I, th- I think it's driven by being hungry to uh, create the door and going out and seeking opportunity. It's uh, just, you know, taking the initiative to do something to improve your own life and improve the lives of your family. So it takes a little ambition to get started for sure. Yes, and a little bravery. Yeah, I mean, you got to be a risk taker if you're going to be an entrepreneur, right? Yes. That's the name of the game. Um, How does, we're already talking a little bit about Cambodia, and I love that, but 
you said you've done a lot of work there. Uh, were you in any way involved in, in, I guess, building those metaphorical doors and, and helping Cambodians, you know, um, expose themselves and take risks and, and discover opportunities they didn't know existed? Well, it's, it's, I have kind of a long history with Cambodia. Uh, I initially went to Cambodia doing human rights and democracy building just after they had uh, ended their civil war, you know, long, a long time ago, you know, 20 plus years ago. Wow. Um, that kind of then evolved. Um, we had created here in the U.S., created a small socially responsible investment fund uh, to pilot social enterprises in Cambodia. And so we went over and launched uh, four or five different small businesses as kind of a pilot of how can you create a small business that's profitable, but also provides benefits and profits to the employees. And so, yeah, we piloted a, a uh, upscale beauty salon, electronics repair facility, you know, a restaurant, a few different things like that. So that was a pilot project where actually we were trying to see what are, if somebody was to invest in these small businesses, what works, what doesn't work, what some of the methodologies and things. And at the time, there wasn't a lot written on that. There's been a lot of work done in the last 20 years on this topic. But right. we, were kind of, we were kind of like an early pioneer piloting some of these initiatives in and Cambodia. And you said you did that in Cambodia 20 years ago? Yes. That's fantastic. I didn't even know. How long has the Cambodian Job Foundation been around? So um, I worked for a total of 13 years in Southeast Asia, five in Cambodia in the nonprofit social enterprise space, uh, did a lot of uh, consulting work with dozens and dozens of uh, local and international nonprofits in Cambodia. But then I got sucked into bloodthirsty capitalism for another eight years in Vietnam. So (laughs) I spent eight years on the for-profit side in Vietnam and then came back, moved back to the U.S. Cambodia Job Foundation was um, started by some uh, senior missionaries who had returned, I believe, about 2009 from Cambodia and wanted to, you know, they fell in love with the country and the people. I wanted to find a way to help help a young adult who didn't have any opportunities have more opportunities before them in terms of providing job skills training and helping them, uh, you know, provide for their families. Uh, fast forward a few years, the uh, David Moon was the mission president of Cambodia. When he came back from his mission, about, I believe, about 2015, he kind of uh, took over and spearheaded, and he's been the driving force behind the Cambodia Job Foundation from 2015 until uh, just you know a few months ago, 2023. Right. So had kind of an eight-year history there. Lots of great work done. Uh, a lot of businesses helping a lot of people start small businesses. A number of uh, larger businesses were spun off, including one very large uh, private school, Design International School of Phnom Penh. Wow, that's and really cool. They have a like an eleven-story building just being finished right now. So that kind of spun off, started as a project of the Cambodia Job Foundation. Now its own, its own self-sustaining, not-for-profit uh, private school. Dang, in the that's country, some, that's a measurable impact right there. That's really cool. Yeah, and, you know, and along the way, hun- uh, thousands of people have gone through entrepreneurship training, job skills training, you know, uh, other things that have hopefully helped improve their lives. That's really interesting. I wonder if you could tell me more about your role specifically in the Cambodian Job Foundation, because it sounds like it was a really successful nonprofit and still is. 
But I want to know, what was your part to play? Like, what did that look like in your day-to-day? You got to live in Cambodia, I understand? So when I lived in Cambodia, it was when I was doing consulting work in the past. Um, from 2014 onwards, I was working here at BYU on a full-time basis. Cambodia Job Foundation actually has two, had two organizations. One U.S.-based 501c3, which is a nonprofit classification based here in Alpine, Utah. And that was just the voluntary board doing a lot of fundraising, networking, collaboration. But the actual organization itself was a nonprofit registered in Cambodia. And they had, you know, depending on the projects and what was going on, you know, 35 plus staff uh, doing, running all of the programs and projects directly in Cambodia. So all the, the model was basically fundraise in the U.S. and all of the activity was executed in in Cambodia. On the ground. So So, what did you do as executive director? Well... As I volunteered on the board for like seven years with, you know, a, t- a team of really smart, capable, experienced people providing guidance, leadership, fundraising support to the Cambodia Job Foundation. It was just uh, this last year that I took on uh, a fundraising role, took on the title executive director so it would uh, help clarify expectations in, in talking with potential donors. Um, and made some trips over to Cambodia, working with the staff, looking, uh, doing analysis of their programs, their impact, their the measurements, the tools they use to get things done and helping provide guidance. So most of my time with the Cambodia Job Foundation was as a volunteer board member, just helping provide guidance and strategy. Uh, one of the things that was really interesting, you know, maybe from an academic perspective and an impact perspective was uh, realizing that the Cambodia Job Foundation was doing some good stuff, helping specific demographics uh, learn skills and improve their ability to provide income for their families. But there was another Utah-based organization with the same mission, working with the same demographic, doing fairly similar things. And so we initiated a conversation between these two organizations like, hey, you know, why do why are we paying for two offices in the <laughs> country? Why Why are we duplicating we have very similar programs. Is there a way that we can combine and merge these two together? So about a year ago, um, Cambodia Job Foundation is just an, was as an NGO, a nonprofit working just in Cambodia, a much larger organization called Enterprise Mentors. They had they work in I I, I think thirteen countries. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, I, they're called Mentors International, <coughs> right? Mentors they, International. Their whole thing yeah. is being you know a global force for good. Yeah, so it's it's a great organization, um, very well run started conversations with them. And so over the course of this last year, we have uh, phased out Cambodia Job Foundation as a legal entity, still kind of in process, and merged the two organizations, the two staff, the two operations. So hopefully now we have one, you know, better economies of scale. We've brought together the best of both organizations. We know we didn't even, we purposely tried not to lay any staff off. Now we have more staff, more capability to do more good for more people. That's fantastic. I'm so glad. It sounds like it's been changes for good, you know, post-merge. So that's that's really good. Um, I want you to tell me more about your experiences just working in Cambodia. Like, I can't tell you how jealous I am. <laughs> You've been there for years on end. What was it like living in Cambodia for multiple years? Like, what did you learn? Well, it, it's, it's hard to answer that because my first experiences go back... Uh, a quarter century and life was very, very different there at that time. They had just come out of a civil war. 
Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Killing Fields. I haven't. No. Yeah. So there had been the the that uh, the Khmer Rouge had come to power at the the, at the fall of uh, Vietnam. The week before Vietnam fell to the communists, Uh, Cambodia fell to the communist uh, rebels. Right around 1975. 1975, they abolished money. They uh, they abolished cities. They said, we're going to have a pure agrarian society. Everybody's going to be equal. If you wore glasses, if you were educated, if you had ever spoken to a foreigner, you were executed. Yeah, I read a book called Cambodia's Curse um, by a, a really great journalist from the New York Times. But he uh, he talks about how basically the whole doctrine of the Khmer Rouge was just a departure from the influence of Western civilization, and that included technology, that included teachers and doctors and all these forces of, of modernism. They really wanted to go back to what they saw as the golden years of Cambodia, which was like, you know, Angkor Wat empire, right? That mm-hmm. that colonial, kind of ancient almost. Pre-colonial. Exactly, era. pre-colonial, really. So did you, were you able to see any effects of that while you were there? Oh, absolutely. When I first landed in Cambodia in 1995, they just finished a UN-sponsored elections two years previous. At the time, there was one working stoplight in the entire country. Half of the the streets of the capital city was still dirt. Uh, I was working at a human rights democracy building organization. We'd log, we'd have to lock ourselves in our in our homes by seven o'clock at night because by eight p.m. there were raging gun battles up and down the streets of the capital city. I mean, it was a crazy place. You're kidding. And then the next day, we'd try to figure out all right who was shooting whom for you know, our HR reports. Right. I don't think, from what I read, I don't think they even knew necessarily who was shooting whom. There was a lot of confusion, uh, just in general, because you know, after a civil war like that, it's kind of hard to know whose side anyone's on, right? It was, and then to have the UN sponsor elections like that and, and give them a second chance was unprecedented. They took a took a huge risk. It was the largest UN pro, uh, project ever, UNTAC, United Nations Transitional Authority for Cambodia. It was a two-year project, tens of thousands of people hired to uh, basically ensure the, the peace and the monitoring mechanisms for the elections. Right. And then uh, I believe it was Hun Sen, right, that came into power and, and kind of held on until recently, right? 20, 20, like last year? Well, he actually lost that election for UNTAC, the UNTAC election in 1993, but he, he said, well, he thought he'd win. And he said, well, you either give me power or I'll continue the civil war. And the, the United Nations acquiesced and gave him, made co-prime ministers for several years, you know, battlefield enemies they tried to make two prime ministers think how good a country runs with one prime minister <laughs> now picture two who hate each other oh man it was it was a rough time and uh then in 1997 he rolled tanks into the capital city and uh took out the the prince the royalist party you know tanks blew up you know their palace executed all the generals on the other side and he retained power you know um were you there for all of that I was there for a, you know, I, I, was, I was rolled out of bed a few times from tanks, you know, rumbling through the streets in front of our house. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't imagine what that must have been like. So I actually did a paper in 1998 at the Rocky Mountain Association of Asian Studies where I did a character analysis of Hun Sen, the prime minister. And I said he will do anything he can to stay into power until his son can uh, will get of age and then he can 
create a generational dynasty, which is a thing that happens in Asia. I mean, look at North Korea. His son was a student at West Point at the time. Yeah, he came to U.S. Um, USA for, for his graduate studies, and right? I, you know, I'm kind of sad my prediction turned out true because just this past summer, six months ago, that actually happened, you know, 23 years later. Yeah. Exactly as I predicted. Yeah, he's the new, is it prime minister? He's the prime minister. His son is prime, uh, the new prime minister. And Hun Sen has retired as the, you know, emeritus prime minister. He still holds <laughs> all the power, but. Of course. So Shane, I, in reading and, and doing a lot of research on Cambodia and also just hearing their tragic history, a common, I guess, narrative or dialogue you will hear is that Cambodia is cursed, that there's not really any hope left for them, that they follow this pattern of, of almost uh, self-degradation. And I personally don't believe in that. I think that they still have hope, but I wonder what you think. And I, like, is there still hope for Cambodia? And if so, why? What have you seen in your years living there, being with those people that would tell you one way or the other if, if they have a chance, you know, if they can come back from a truly devastating history in the last 50 years? Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of that book, The, was it the Curse. Cambodian's of, Curse. Cambodian's yeah. Curse. When um, I first went to Cambodia, I would hear a phrase uh, very commonly, uh, it means like uh, we want... It was kind of an aspirational term, but it was it was ingrained in the collective uh, psyche of the of the population. Is like we've come through this traumatic thing, but we want to improve to become like others, like other countries that have peace, have democracy, have these things. So there was a lot of hope at that time. Uh, the younger generation rising up, it has. There was a tremendous hope when you know CNN came in. I would I would walk down the streets when first international TV stations were coming in, CNN, you'd see, pe- you'd see kids writing CNN on the sidewalk because it was, <laughs> it was such a powerful force to actually get news and information and visual images of the outside world and see how other people lived became very aspirational. So to answer your question, I think there's a lot of hope. I think there's been a lot of, there's been uh, setbacks politically as um, there's been a retrenchment into authoritarianism, embracing uh, China's, China's been driving a lot of this, pushing uh, the authoritarian model. Democracy doesn't work anymore in Cambodia. But uh, the people are incredibly hopeful. If you look at, you know, the last visit I made to Cambodia, you know, 14 months ago, I was surprised at the embrace of technology, how it had changed things. You know, for uh, let me just share one example. Sure. Cambodia Job Foundation, there was one young lady she would. She had worked. She had uh, two little kids. She had worked in a garment shop, uh, shop making dresses, high-end dresses, like for weddings and things. Very intricate, with like, uh, you know, one dress would have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of sequins and sparkly things sewn into them. So a lot of work went into these things. Very high-end. She decided, well, I'm going to start on my own. Historically, if you wanted to open a shop, you had to be on a busy street. She's like, well, I have Facebook. So she was out in a back, you know, back country, you know, back road, back corner of Phnom Penh, way off the beaten path. But she got onto Facebook, and she marketed through Facebook these beautiful dresses, and she had just a line of people wanting to buy her dresses. That's fantastic. So much so, she had to hire one additional seamstress and a second ad- additional seamstress. She could be home with her kids working on sewing these dresses. Then she had a, she was providing employment to a couple other of young young ladies. 
She'd uh, received these skills on like how she should grow this business through the Cambodia Job Foundation's training. But then she's able to use technology to leverage her impact economically for her family and economically for the employees that she was hiring. That's really, that's, that's so inspiring. And I think one of the biggest goals that we have is, is to see if investing in small businesses will have an impact in communities, uh, in Cambodia as a whole. And from what you've been saying, that sounds like, you know, I, it gives me hope that it will have an impact, that it will make a difference. Yeah. So for that case, particularly, I think uh, Cambodia Job Foundation, after she completed the training, she'd created a business plan. Here is what I'm going to do to grow my business. I think she was given, if I recall, maybe like $700 to start her business. Wow. And that, that's probably a, a large sum of money in Cambodia. Well, that was enough seed money to, you know, kickstart the process. Well, going off of that, I really want to know, could you just tell us, like, what's your favorite thing about Cambodia? Now we've talked about it a lot, and we've talked about the good and the bad. I know it's probably hard to pick one thing, but for our listeners, that and for me, you know, we haven't been there. What What is it about Cambodia that you fell in love with? You know, if you talk to people that visit Cambodia, I hear often hear the same thing that people fall in love with. Uh, it is a culture of caring and compassion. It's the people. They, sometimes you'll, there's a book, I think, called The Land of Smiles. And I don't think I've heard of that. So, um, yeah, it, it analyzes good, the good and bad of that. But there's a, a lot of happiness, friendliness, uh, people wanting to, in some ways, find the good in life. I've talked with my wife in the, you know, many times in the past that the different mental state. If you're in Cambodia and, you know, historically, if you had $20 in your pocket, you were king of the world. You're happy. It's like, you know, life was not that complicated. You could, you know, you had enough to provide for the day, provide for the week, provide for the month. You could, you know, go out with your friends and, you know, have, have some street side food and enjoy the sunset and just you know, enjoy life. Uh, meanwhile, in the U.S., if you have $20 in your pocket, you're thinking, well, I've got this bill due, I've got that bill due, I've got this interest rate on, you know, this line of funding, you know, all, all these things. The, the complexity creates a lot of stress and anxiety, but in Cambodia, people live more simply. I mean, I'm bit, that's a very broad generalization. Things are obviously changing and becoming more complicated, but still, I think that ethos still exists, even as modernity has uh, crept in. That's really cool. I love that. It sounds like they're making the most of what they have. And, and more than that, I think uh, for those of us who might have the chance to travel there, we can learn something from them, from from a, a simpler, more humble way of life, right? Yeah. And when I say simpler and humbler, I, you know, I'm talking at all ends of the economic spectrum. So, you know, you have like the small time shop owners, but, um, you know, I've I spent some time on my last visit also at um, a jewelry, uh, the jewelry store owner that built like their own huge big building with a swimming pool on the roof. You know, one of the advisors, I'm, I'm sitting there at dinner also and one of the advisors to the prime minister shows up and we're all having dinner together. It's kind of this elite level. And then one of the, you know, super rich oligarch wives comes in like the next day and she's buying, you know, She's like, oh, this is only $10,000. You know, she just drops drops $10,000 on like, you know, some earring or something. But their ethos and their their approach to enjoying life 
it's it's the same as those that are making you know three hundred dollars a month. It's almost like a, I have a quote actually for twenty twenty four that I'm trying to live by, and it's live every moment. And I feel like that that kind of sounds like their ethos, right? It's just getting the most out of out of the day. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of it, it, Cambodia is an interesting mix. Uh, the pr- predominant religion is Theravada Buddhism. It's where it promotes uh, not having attachments to things. So people are still striving to improve themselves, but at a deep subconscious level, there is kind of this detachment. It's like, well, life is life. That's just how things are going to happen. Good, bad. We're just going to keep going through and do the best we can and have fun along the way. Yeah, I love that. I feel like we could all use a little more of that, I guess, hope, that optimism in our lives. Um, I want to talk with you before we wrap up just a little bit about the Cambodia project. As you know, we're looking at, you know, trying to make a difference and and working in this developing economy, but you've already been there, done that. So I wanted you to tell me what, if you could just tell us what difficulties we might face, you know, try and help us in advance anticipate what, what, what would you see as some of the possible obstacles we're going to have to overcome in order to you know, go into a developing economy and try to make a positive change in Cambodia? That's, that's a good question. Um, there's been a lot of things done over the years. I, when I, the years I was doing consulting work, I did a couple of projects for the Asian Development Bank and also the International Labor Organization. You know, broad, those are you know, big multilateral agencies. They had uh, projects either looking at... Uh, you know, combating trafficking, creating uh, income generation to that would combat trafficking, or supporting the garment industry, which provided large amounts of uh, employment. It was, it was like the largest employment sector in the country. But the question at the time was like, so what? We're, these things are happening. Are they actually making a change? Are they actually helping improve the lives of people? Yeah. Um, for the the, the two projects I did with the garment sector through the Asian Development Bank, all, you know, there was like 250,000 young women working in these garment factories, but was it changing their lives? Well, the first day came back and said, well, economically, no, because they're sending all of the, everything that they can save back to the home village. So then we did a second study going back into the villages that were sending, you know, these young women. The young women were working at very low wages, but they were living as economically as possible to send everything back to support the whole family back on the farm in the countryside. And going going back into the countryside, talking to these families, having this small injection of cash did make life a little bit better, but not dramatically. And that was kind of the, the results of those finding. And so from that, looking at some of the lessons learned from that is measurement. How are you going to measure the changes that are happening? How are you going to measure where people are currently? If, and if, if economics is the measuring tool, if what, what are people's income now? And then at, at the end of the project, halfway through the project, end of the project, six months, a year, two years later, how has their income changed? You have to have a measuring rubric in place. And, yeah, and that, maybe follow the money, right? Trying to figure out where, where it's actually going. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's gonna be one of the biggest challenges is saying, well, it's easy to say, yeah, we had 20, you know, at the Ballard Center, we talk a lot about um, in the do good better class, 
caring about the the impact and how do you measure that. You can't just measure, you know, did you send 20 people to training? Well, yeah, you sent 20 t- people to training, but that wasn't really an outcome. If you send them to training, did they learn the skills? That's the next level. And then did it have results? Yeah. So going beyond surface level numbers and results, it sounds like is going to be one of the obstacles, but also opportunities that we might have as we Absolutely. Go, go abroad and, and work with Cambodians. Uh, going along with that, one of the I guess, social topics that we are planning on digging a little deeper into in Cambodia is curbing domestic abuse. Um, it's in line with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number five, which is about gender equality. And so we're trying to work, I guess, towards that in Cambodia through these small businesses. But from what you know about Cambodian culture, do you think this is an endeavor worth tackling? And uh, what problems you know, might come along as, as we're trying to educate and promote gender equality in Cambodia? Well, that's a big topic. How much time do you have now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, let me just hit one or two kind of high level things. Linguistically, in Cambodian, it's a matriarchal language. If you say village chief, you say Maypung, which is the mother of the village. Okay. And, you know, the the, the commune, or which is like county chief, is... Uh, make home, which is, you know, mother of the commune. So ingrained linguistically, it's a matriarchal society. But then you see on, on the, the actual power structures, there's a lot of male dominance. There's a, uh, historically, there's a, a the way of uh, expectations for how you are a man leading your home. How do you educate your children or educate your wife? There's a euphemism uh, for, like, let's say your, your children, you teach your children, that's a euphemism for, like, you smack your children around till they do what you tell them to do. <laughs> oh, and kidding. sometimes people use that, you know, men will use that with their wife also. It's like, you know, like, you teach your wife. It means you're euphemism, you're smacking them around. There's been a lot of social efforts to try to curb this over time. Uh, different NGOs have done resources, you know, for women, that battered women and children, try to do some resources. I don't know the current status of these projects, but I think there's a lot of, I, I would suspect there's still a lot of need in that space. Yeah, so you're talking about some really deeply ingrained, almost cultural aspects that we're looking at, at least addressing, maybe not changing necessarily, but we want to change behavior at the very least, you know, if not the culture itself. Um, but could you tell me more about maybe like, what kind of problems could you see us facing as we're trying to work on the ground through small businesses to promote gender equality? Do you see any issues with that? Would there be any societal pushback? Um, and do you have any suggestions on how we go about it? I guess I'm just kind of fishing for, for ideas, for advice as we try to implement this on the ground. Uh, my my perception is you wouldn't really receive pushback promoting something like this because I think there's been a lot of organizations who've tried to do similar things in similar spaces. So it's not like it would be a new idea or something. No, but uh, you know I think it would be beneficial as you're going into kind of do a uh, you know a, a sector survey. I don't know if that's the right word, but just kind of a survey of like, all right, who's done what over the last ten years in this space. So then you can look at lessons learned. What you know? What are, you know? Say there's 20 projects different organizations have done. 
what did they do, what worked well, what didn't work well, so then you know the pitfalls to avoid, and you can kind of you know use that to leapfrog the refinement and evolution of your project. Okay, yeah, that's that's awesome. That's really good advice, and I do hope that you know as we try to implement these measures, we're being respectful. That's something we talked about a lot. It's like trying to be respectful of the culture of existing, you know, whatever it is, hidden biases, uh, and and knowing that you know we're not perfect either. And coming in from a Western country and trying to push our own morals or our own ideas on onto this culture is not what we're after, right? It's more like we just want to raise awareness and and hopefully we can all be on the same page as far as, you know, gender equality is something good. It, it really lifts a whole economy. It lifts a community. Um, and it's good for everyone, women and men alike. So uh, both it, for my time in Cambodia and also my time in Vietnam, some of the most powerful managers and organizations I met were women. It was a, uh, I had a, when I was working in Vietnam, I had a, a friend or a, a, a visitor from a, for overseas and he was seeing the managers for the company I was managing working and he's like, man, they're like iron and silk. It's like a, a iron fist in a silk glove. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's some cool so, imagery. Yeah, so he gets a very, you know, very, very, very competent, capable women leading organizations. Cambodia Job Foundation is is led by Ms. Kanaka. She's an exceptional leader, exceptional manager. That's awesome. I think you're giving me a lot of hope for our project. I hope that, you know, we're able to work with these women and uh, and really just kind of get the word out there that, that we can um, embrace, I guess, a, a gender neutral society, you know, just just everyone has something to contribute. I, I've been dying to ask just one last question, I guess. Since you you speak Khmer, right? The Cambodian language? Yes. Um, would you be willing well, I to share... to. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Don't we all, right? Would you be willing to share something you learned? Uh, it can be, you know, just a piece of advice or a saying from Cambodia for our listeners. Um, something that you heard or learned in Cambodia. And could you share it in Khmer so we can all hear the language? And then in English, just like some kind of advice. I I had a whole book where I collected aphorisms and sayings <laughs> okay, <perfect. laughs> over time in, in Khmer. So I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, common saying, Jill Stung Dom Bap, which, man, my pronunciation sounds terrible. I haven't been speaking much, but I can <laughs> I hear myself. Tell. It's okay. But it's basically enter the river, go with the flow. Hmm. And, you know, and the English version of that is like, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Okay. But it's basically saying when, when, you know, things are flowing a certain way in life, you just jump in and then you go with it. Interesting. That's really cool. Would you say, would you say that, you know, your time in Cambodia has changed you as a person since, since being there? Would you say you see life a little differently? Well, all, most of my early career years were in Cambodia, had a profound influence on me. I didn't realize how profound until some years later, I was at a, an embassy function in Vietnam and there was some guy there. Now, nobody will say he's with the CIA, but he was with the CIA. <laughs> so I, I was talking to him for two minutes and he said, I can tell you have lived in a, in a, uh, in a Buddhist country, haven't you? And he, 
because he could he could just read my body mannerisms. I still had these Cambodian mannerisms in the way you carry yourself, the way you interact, lean into conversations and stuff. He could read those subtle body cues and could tell I had lived in Cambodia. And I and I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. I still have these mannerisms that I had uh, developed over time. Just the way that you interact with other human beings. You greet Cambodians very respectfully. You raise your hands up, you know, to, uh, to your nose. Chumurip sua. And just, you know, very respectful greetings, you know, similar to Thailand. And That's just so cool. I'm so glad that you had the opportunity to go there and live with them. And I'm also glad that you had the opportunity to come in and, and speak on our podcast today. Shane, it's been a, it's been a pleasure just talking with you and, and hearing all of your, I guess, your outsider insights. And um, I guess just a word to all of our listeners out there. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for following Inside the Cambodia Project. And I hope that as you go out, wherever you are in the world, you can remember that everyone has power to make a difference. Everyone has something in them that they can give. And whatever that is for you, whether it's a minute of your time or a smile or a wave, just remember to lift where you stand.